So, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a heads up this morning. I'm sick. So, I know you feel like I get sick a lot, but this one is totally my fault. As last week in the hallway and, and midget demon Sam Carpenter is running around. He's <laughs> running the hallway and he's playing with all the Star Wars stuff. And I go, Sam, it's not yours to start playing. He's all spinning the globes and I'm all, stop it. So, I grab him. We're kind of wrestling in the hallway, kind of having fun and stuff. And he starts trying to donkey kick me like this. So, I wrap my legs around him and I go, mm, and I stick it in his ear and I stick it in his other ear. Not realizing it's after third service, I haven't washed my hands. And I just stuck everybody's germs from all three services in my mouth. Exactly right. So, so Monday night, I'm going to sleep, and I start having nightmares. Like I'm like, oh, oh, oh. just thinking about this. Right? It's dry. Oh, it 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 is disgusting. So, you guys are just no. (laughs) So I woke up on Tuesday morning. I'm starting to get sick, and I and I thought I did a good job on Tuesday and Wednesday. I thought I fought it because Wednesday night I was I was feeling pretty good. Thursday, and all of a sudden Friday, it's just like bam, and it hits me, and I'm sick. So I'm doped up this morning. Just, so if I'm like start laughing at something, be like, you didn't say the joke. I'll be like, oh, whoops. Yeah, just. A couple things. Uh, on, on your chairs, you have these bags, okay? Uh, and oh, I, brought, I got one over here just so I don't have to touch yours and get everything all sick. This isn't a Fandango puppet. Be like, oh, we'll see the Hobbit. Okay? This is a bag for you to put cookies in. And so this week... Uh, when you come back next Sunday morning, bring this bag with cookies in it. Cookies you've made or bought, if you can't make cookies. It's okay. We'll take store-bought. Uh, so you, you put cookies in the bag, bring them back, and then next week we're going to put them all back. You guys get to have all the cookies everybody else is making. Like, oh, yummy, this is a great cookie. Oh, this is a hockey puck. You know? <laughs> oh, I thought that was chocolate. It's just burnt. You know? <laughs> No, if, if you're making like snickerdoodles and, the, and they come out looking like chocolate cookies, just throw them away. Just throw them away. So, what, and we do get a lot of cookies when we do this. And so a few years ago when we did this, we gave all the extras to the guys working on the base on Christmas Eve. And then someone stole our idea. So and we're like, well, okay, we'll find another. So then we gave them to like, I think firemen and policemen and stuff. Last year they went to the police department. And this year we're probably going to do that as well as taking them to the people who are working in the ER on Christmas Eve so that people have, hey, here's a nice gift. So whatever's left over, see you. So bring cookies. Okay. And they were all decorated, not by me, okay, but by, by like little kids in the, in the kids department. So I don't know who Rogaine is, but apparently he needs some more hair. So. And I, I said these kids can't spell, and someone's like, ooh, that's service. So I'm like, I'm thinking they might be three, so it might be okay if they can't spell, okay? No judgment here. <laughs> it's like, these are made by the high schoolers. Well, then we got a problem. <laughs> I know the kids. Uh, Christmas Eve services are 7, 9, and 11 p.m. on, obviously, Christmas Eve. It's about a week and a half away. Uh, if you're coming, be on time. We actually start these services on time. I know crazy thing to do. So we start these on time. Uh, usually all the services are pretty full. Uh, the first one, the 7 o'clock one, there's usually like, you know, 50, 60 people in overflow in the back. Uh, 9 o'clock, we have people in overflow. 11 o'clock, almost everybody makes it inside, but it's very tight. And so if, if you're coming, come early, uh, grab a seat. Uh, if you're a leader at Element, especially a deacon or something like that, and you're here and you see someone that needs a seat, we'd really appreciate it if you would be someone who maybe gave up yours. But so they're not coming. So no. Uh, <laughs> so just you know, just just be looking and see people need help and and, and things like that. Uh, the seven o'clock service uh, has childcare up to four years old. 
Uh, so if they're over four years old, bring them with you. It's going to be a family-friendly service. Uh, I, I promise, not like two years ago when I ruined all their hopes and dreams of Santa Claus, apparently. Okay, so I won't do that. I, seriously, it has been two years since I did that. And I was just making a joke during the message. And two, years, two whole years, you people are still mad at me about that. We worship Jesus in this church, people, okay? Just getting that out there right now. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. Inside those uh, sermon notes, uh, they're not bulletins. They're sermon notes. Inside those uh, sermon notes, there's uh, uh, some stuff that was written by one of our GC leaders to go along with the message and some questions that go along with it. On the back, there's some announcements. If you have a smartphone, though, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You can click on Live and use Uversion. It brings up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes and questions and verses and all that goes along with it. Again, uh, there is the new password. Uh, so the, the new network name would be Element Guest, and, and the password is welcome to element, all lowercase, one word, no numbers. There you go. You're welcome. Why don't you stand there? You're reading God's word. And as I told last service, I'm going to really try and stick to my notes. So I'm not like, <laughs> I'll blame it on the cold medicine. Uh, this is Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And this is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who would worship and honor and glorify you. That we would be under your authority. That we'd be astonished at the things that you have said and continue to say. And that your spirit would speak to us and convict us and lead us in the ways that we need to be led so that we would be a people under your authority bringing great glory and honor to you. Amen. Have a seat. So this is nearly the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We actually have one week left. Uh, and that's next week. That'll be week 45. And what's going to happen is James is going to come and speak next week. Uh, way at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I told James, I said, I said, okay, this is how it's going to work. At the end of it, I want you to do the next week because I want you to tell everybody what you think I said for the last 40 weeks or so. <laughs> so I'm really interested. It, what do you think I said? You know, if it's really good, I'll take all the credit. If it's bad, I'll be like, that's not what I said, you know. <laughs> Um, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to kind of run through a lot of this. Uh, Today I've got kind of a four-part message for you, but it's all about these ending verses uh, in Matthew chapter 7. Hopefully, you know, by the end of this, you'll feel like this has been a wrap-up. I'm wrapping these things up because it kind of is. The first thing that that Matthew says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 28, says, when Jesus finished these sayings. Now, what are those sayings? Those sayings are the Sermon on the Mount. That's everything that's kind of gone so far. I think it's kind of funny. It reminds me of you guys a little bit because Sometimes when I talk about certain things, you will come up to me and you will say, oh, I liked it a couple weeks ago when you said this or when you said that. And, I, and I'm glad you remember anything I say. I actually, actually am. But th- this is still kind of that, that deal that people can take and they remember certain things that Jesus said. But you can also take the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. They're individual sayings, but they're all part of a whole. And it's all about living with God more closely, what the kingdom of God life is actually supposed to look like. We have preached probably 27 to 30 hours in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus probably spent two, so we can always expand on his words. Uh, so this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. These are the first things he talked about. He said, Bless the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is, Fortunate are those who are so desperate that they rely on God alone. Blessed are the nobodies, the losers, the people like, Oh, I don't want to be those. Blessed are those 
people. The kingdom of God is available to them. Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Fortunate are those whose hearts have been completely broken over their sin and loss, because God himself is going to carry their load. 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Fortunate are those who are gentle and humble and lowly, who, who come along and they understand that the kingdom of God belongs to nobody's. 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Fortunate are those who have a deep longing and appetite for God's true justice. 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Fortunate are those who end up being in a place where they find it easy to forgive, because they realize that they themselves have been forgiven by God. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Fortunate are those who will God's will alone above everything else, who want what God wants. 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Fortunate are those who make themselves instruments of peace among conflicts that don't just try and soothe things out, but actually bring the gospel into those conflicts that bring the understanding of what redemption is supposed to be. They're going to be seen as God's kids. 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Fortunate are those who are persecuted because they put Jesus above everything else in their lives. Because when you follow Jesus, not everybody in your life is going to like it. Then Jesus moves on to talk about being salt and light in the world, that from this blessing we're to live differently. He moves into the idea of what true worship looks like. He goes into anger, and not that all anger is bad, but he says, you know, in anger, don't murder people. Don't try to destroy other people. In the end of the Gospels, really, Jesus himself was crucified for our sins, so we don't have to crucify everybody else for every little slight that we think they've done against us. He moves into lust and appetites. He moves into fulfilling the O's that we have made. So our yes is yes and our no is no. He moves from that into loving our enemies. In chapter 6, he starts off by saying, live in a way that doesn't need to be noticed by everybody around you. Don't just live so everybody looks at you and says, oh, how great you are. He says, live so that you're really going for an audience of one, that it's between you and God. Then he was into, so you understand that God is like your father. Then he says, find your treasure in him, and that will change how you view treasure in your life. And even then he goes on, when you struggle between faith and doubt, it's okay because God becomes the author and perfecter of your faith. And in chapter 7, he goes and says, leaves everything in God's hands. You don't need to try and judge everybody else. He can take care of it all. And then he kind of sums it all up at the end by talking about two roads and two trees and two houses and building your house on the rock. All of these sayings progress forward, yet can be understood individually. It's kind of like a package of milk duds. One milk dud is so good. They eat the whole package, and it's really, really so good. It's both ways. See, I've got a Milk Dud reference in there, right? <laughs> I will see you at the Hobbit with my Milk Dud. That, that's how it works. So when Jesus is done speaking these things, the next thing Matthew says is the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Now, the word astonished is the Greek word expleso, and it's this combination of two Greek words, from and to strike. And so in certain circumstances, it can mean to strike out, expel by a blow, to drive away. But in this context, what it means is to be stricken out of your self-possession. Oh, I'm so sure I know everything that God would always ever say to me. And it's like, boom, and Jesus blows your mind. Anybody ever watch Seinfeld? All right, okay. Kramer's everybody's favorite character in Seinfeld, right? You blew my mind, Jerry. You ever see the episode where the, where the red chicken was outside? His, he's like, 
right? That, but, and he always walks in. That, that's the idea. Like, he's always got his mind blown. He's like, wow! That's, that's what it's like. When you hear the words of Jesus, these people, they had their minds blown in a very good way. Jesus spoke. They were amazed at what was said. This isn't the only time this happened. I'll give you a little historical background. The Israelites were a people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they all had some instruction in memorizing. Like at age six, most Jewish kids would go to school for the first time. They would be taught by either, uh, they're probably at their local rabbi, at their local synagogue. And the first level of, level of education is called Bet Sefer, which means house of the book. And that book is the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. And so you take these and these students would learn this. They would start to memorize it. They would ask questions about it. They'd go really deep into it. And by the time that they were 10 years old, they would have the whole thing memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I know, you fall asleep in Leviticus. They memorize it, all right? And this is why when Jesus is teaching a lot of times in the New Testament, he will say certain things that it seems like everybody's heard it, like every, everybody knows it, a certain phrase or a certain verse. Matthew 5, 21, 27, 33, 38, John 8, 54 to 59. Jesus keeps saying, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, because they have heard that it was said. If you lived during that time, you didn't have your own copy of the scriptures because the printing press hadn't been invented for 1,400 years after this. So your entire village could probably only afford one copy of the scriptures that's kept in the local synagogue where you would go to school. And you might, as an adult, only see it once a week when it's taken out of the Torah ark to be read publicly. So memorization is important because if God's people are supposed to, you know, meditate on God's word and think about those things, they had to know it. Today, we've become way too familiar, I think, with the scriptures because nobody memorizes it anymore. John 3, 16, oh, that's the football verse, something about God and love and I don't know, something. And we're like, we probably have 10 or 12 Bibles laying around our house all collecting dust. We don't even open them. These people memorize the scriptures. Now, by the time you're 10 years old, obviously some kids are going to be better at it than others. I know you're probably thinking anybody better at it than me, right? But you know, at 10 years old, so you, you'd have some people with a natural ability, and they would go on to the next level of education. And this is called Bet Talmud, which means house of learning. And what they would do is they would go and memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and learn how to ask questions about it. I mean, think about this. By age 13, 14, 15, a lot of these students had the entire Old Testament memorized. Genesis to Malachi, memorized, kind of crazy. But if you didn't make the cut, what would happen to you? You would still go out and learn a trade. You would probably go apprentice with your family. If they made sandals, you'd make sandals. If they were carpenters, you'd carpenter, make things, whatever. You know, if they made wine, you'd make wine. If they were farmers, you'd farm. And, and what would happen is, after you apprentice with your parents, your extended family, you would then go out and you would get a real job. As people like to say to pastors, you get a real job. Now, th- this notion uh, of how Jewish people educated their kids, it's very foreign to us. Because when we educate each other, we do things like, I'm going to give you all this information, I'll give you a test, and you feed that information back to me exactly as I gave it to you, and that's how you pass. In Jewish education, it's more about ask questions. I want to see if you're understanding what I'm saying to you. Don't just regurgitate it. I want you to process through it and work through these things, which is a really good thing. But what then starts to happen is the people that did make it past 10 years old and go on to the next one and then make it past 4 or 15 and then go on to be a disciple of a rabbi, they started to become very arrogant because, well, I'm better than all these other people. I'm still in school. I'm, I'm like the educated elite. I have been educated beyond my intelligence. You know, it, it's, it, it's, this, it's this whole idea where they became very, very arrogant and they started to look down at everybody else around them because they weren't able to go through all the stuff that the religious people did. Now, open your Bibles to John chapter 7. 
In John chapter 7, what happens is the religious leaders are furious with Jesus because Jesus is teaching the people in a way that's like right down on eye level. So everybody gets it. They can understand it. The Sermon on the Mount is very practical. And it's right down on eye level so people can get this. And the religious leaders don't like that because they like keeping it way up here because if it's way up here, you're going to need them longer and longer to explain all these concepts that they just don't get. Okay? So you've got to keep it way, way up here. And so what happens is Jesus is teaching in this way, and then they get really mad at him, so they take these soldiers they hired, and they said, go arrest Jesus and bring him here. And the soldiers go to get Jesus and come back without him. Matthew, or John chapter 7, verses uh, 44 to 46, this is what happens. It says, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? Okay, why did you not bring him? The officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. We sent you to go get him. We pay you so we can be cowards. And you didn't bring him back with you. Why? It's a great answer. No one ever spoke like this man. It's like, you've got to hear this guy teach. You guys teach and you drone on forever. Well, it feels like forever anyway. Just on and on and on. And this guy talks and it's like the words of God. And their response to this, verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? And their implied answer to that is no, but the real answer is actually yes. I look at John chapter 3, Nicodemus, you know. And so the answer, but you don't want to say yes, that just gets you in more trouble, right? And, but, the, but these Pharisees are like, we're smarter than Jesus. We don't bow down. You're a stupid common person. You have to let me tell you what this says. You can't just believe that Jesus and so they, they keep going on and says, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed, that doesn't know all the things that we know, they haven't studied like we've studied, they are under a curse. And that's the problem with a lot of religious elite, is they believe they are wiser than Jesus. They believe they know better than Jesus. Now, if you look through the scriptures, the key to wisdom throughout the scriptures is this idea of love and fear and respect of who God is. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is what builds you up. Knowledge makes you arrogant if you only stay there. And if you study the scriptures and you don't love God, you're going to be arrogant or you're going to be obstinate. The goal of studying scripture is not to outquote each other. It's not to so we can sit around and talk about all these things that nobody else knows about. Superlapsarianism. You're like, what in the world's that? Right, exactly. Some people just love to talk about that all day long. The key, the reason that we study and read the scriptures is so we glorify God. They're supposed to lead to that in our lives. And if all of our study of the scriptures doesn't lead to glorifying God and loving Jesus and loving our neighbor and serving people, all we have done is change the Bible into a book of idolatry. Because we're not living it as we are supposed to be living it. If you no longer have God in mind, you can make the scriptures into an idol. And this is the problem with God in every age, not just in Jesus' day. If you study the book rightly, you will end up loving Jesus. You will be astonished and amazed and astounded and blown away by his teaching. Matthew goes on. He says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And this is super important. As one who had authority. Why do we have peace in our lives? Why do we have peace? Why do we not fret? Because Jesus has authority. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why are you not troubled? Why are you not afraid? Because Jesus has authority. And what's really interesting is the next two chapters of the book of Matthew, he goes on to show you that Jesus has the authority of a king. 
I'm going to show you, if it, it's in your notes, but I'm going to show you this if you don't have notes on you. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus shows his authority over leprosy. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, Jesus shows his authority as understood by a soldier over paralysis. Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, Jesus shows his authority over sickness when he heals Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law. And you're probably thinking, well, you can leave my mother-in-law sick. That'd be okay, but no, Jesus heals. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22, Jesus shows his authority to call disciples because only two true teachers could do that. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, Jesus shows his authority over nature by calming a storm. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 to 34, Jesus shows his authority over demons, and they beg him, No, don't send us away. That's how I picture it. No. Anyway, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus shows his authority over forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, Jesus shows his authority over the scripture's meaning and their interpretation. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, Jesus shows his authority over the law, specifically to fasting. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Jesus shows his authority over life and death. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus shows authority over clean and unclean with the hemorrhaging woman. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 31, Jesus shows his authority over blindness. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34, Jesus shows his authority over spiritual forces. And in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, Jesus shows his authority geared towards his people's wholeness. It's amazing. I could have preached 14 more weeks. See? Maybe at some point we'll do that, but you know, you know, today we have such a problem with authority. We really do. We don't like anyone to tell us what to do. So much so that in a lot of churches, when people talk about Jesus, they make Jesus into your buddy and not your Lord or your God or your King. I think that's why Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with, I'm Lord. People come to me and say, Lord, Lord. I'm like, I don't know you because we keep trying to make Jesus into our buddy and not our Lord. And Jesus is your friend. I mean, don't get me wrong, but he is also Lord and King of the universe. I mean, this, this is the idea that, that anytime we try to make Jesus less than he is, it stops being who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus has authority over everything. I mean, think all the way back to, say, like the book of Genesis and Noah's Ark. There, God takes out everybody at Noah's Ark. We make all the nice paintings and put it on our kid's wall. Look at the giraffe. has got his head out the ark. Isn't that cute? Nobody draws the, like, floated, bloated bodies around the, around the ark or anything like that. Why does this happen? Why did that happen? What gives God the right to do that? sovereignty, which means he has authority. The life we have comes graciously from his hand. It is his. He can take it whenever he wishes. At, at Noah's Ark, God just said, today's everybody's day. Boom, that's today. One Jewish teaching says that every breath you take is God breathing in to you. I take a deep breath. Go. That's a gift. That's a gift. I have a friend that comes to first service, and he was in the hospital a couple weeks ago. Because he had these, these clots in his lungs. And he said, when you said that, I thought it was just for me. Because <laughs> I can actually take a deep breath right now, and it's, and it's really, really good. But that's it. Everything comes from God. Everything is a gift from his hand. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus, he is going to die. And yet Jesus says these words in John eleven four: It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Oh, isn't that comforting? Well, if you see Jesus having authority, it's very comforting, actually. In John chapter 9, there's a guy born blind from birth. Why? Jesus says, so the glory of God could be shown in his life. Now, in Jesus' day, if something was wrong with you, much like our day, people think, well, what would you do wrong? Oh, you must have done something wrong. And that's the problem with religion. Religion is all about doing your works, trying to get God to like you because you did enough things for him to like you. Religion is all about you. Religion is not about Jesus. Religion is not about God. Religion is about you. Christianity starts and ends with Jesus and his authority. Religion says, well, there are good people and there are bad people, so you better work really hard. Jesus says, you're all bad people, and then there's me. 
That's what the religion is all about, what I do. Oh, I went to these meetings and I lifted my hands and I prayed really hard and I sang really loud. Christianity is all about Jesus and his finished work. Religion's goal is always to try and get things from God. Oh, I did this and this and this. God, I paid my rent. Now you have to give me this. You have to bless me because I was so good. Christianity's goal is always Jesus and his glory. Religion will see suffering and hurting people as being punished by God. Oh, you're sick. Oh, you lost your job. Well, what did you do wrong? Religion gives people nothing. Nothing. Jesus is the only one with true and real authority. He has authority over you. He has authority over me. And don't think he doesn't. We need to be a people who have our minds blown to be astonished and amazed at his teaching and be under his authority. And the last thing Matthew says in the Sermon on the Mount is, and not as their scribes. And not as their scribes. Now, the scribes are always quoting somebody else, teaching the name of somebody else, kind of like me, right? I have nothing new. I am always just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all I talk about all the time is it's Jesus and, and that's it. And even when you look at Jesus, Jesus really didn't teach a lot of new stuff. He keeps teaching things that are very ancient, that go back to the beginning, what God always intended, that God has grace and he's extending that to mankind. But what did the scribes do with all of this wonderful learning they were able to have? You know what they did? They took their robes and they wrapped them tight around themselves when they walked around people so they wouldn't have to touch anybody because they didn't want humanity getting on them. They thought it would make them unclean and they wanted to stay pure. Not realizing that that very act cut them off from what God was calling them to be in the first place. Which is why I think in Matthew chapter 8, the first thing Jesus does is he touches the person with leprosy. First thing he does, right after the Sermon on the Mount, boom, touches this guy. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. I, and the, 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 the scribes, when they wrapped their robes around, they saw everybody else as beneath them. I mean, like John 7, 49 says, they saw him as beneath them and accursed. But Jesus speaks from a deep place of compassion. He touches people with leprosy. He teaches, touches people who are unclean. He, he plays with children who were the lowest of the low in that society. The Sermon on the Mount is full of simple instinct for loving God and loving people. Behind Jesus' words stand an eternity of grace and truth. And the Sermon on the Mount ends in this remarkable way where Matthew kind of gives this gloss over what he sees happening around him. He sees Jesus teaching all of these things, and he starts to comment on it. His observation is, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For his teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They listened to Jesus, they heard his words, and they were astonished. And it's not necessarily a long sermon. I know we made it into one, but it's not necessarily that long. Jesus' analysis of the kingdom of God is final and irrevocable. Jesus doesn't say, you know, oh, follow the Bible or follow Jeremiah or Isaiah. What he says is he says in Matthew 7, 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Your life, he says, if you base it on my words, you will be as sure and as certain as if you built a house on rock. But if you hear my words and you don't put it into practice, you're building your life on nothing. That is someone who speaks with authority. And Matthew 7 is great and wonderful words. They're They're amazing. But it's not the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus goes on from this. He continues to speak, continues to heal, sticks his head in the cave and calls a dead guy out of a cave. He spits on the ground and makes mud pies and rubs it in the blind guy's eyes and says, go wash because it's disgusting. You know, and, and he goes back and he can, he can see. He calls out to people with leprosy and just says, be healed, and they're healed. But I still think the most amazing thing is right after the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew 8, 2, and 3, it says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is like saying, if you want to, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. And literally, you can translate this as, I want to be clean. Jesus says, I want to. He touches a man that no one is supposed to touch, that the scribes and the Pharisees would not go near. It's probably the first time this man has been touched in years, and it's God who touches him. It's amazing. God makes him whole. We know that eventually Jesus will ride on a donkey into Jerusalem. And within that same week, the crowds who are so fickle, just like us, will start crying for his crucifixion because Jesus calls them to something deeper. Much like we love Jesus and we think Jesus is all like love and hugs and bunnies, but as soon as he starts calling us to something deeper, we don't like it. We're like, oh no, Jesus forgives me, Jesus forgives me. And then Jesus says, right, now forgive those around you that you think have hurt you. Forgive them. I don't want to forgive them. That's too hard. I don't want to. And Jesus calls us into relationships and families with a love that changes us. And yet we don't like it. And we fight against it. We want cheap and easy love, not transformative love. Real transformative love is hard. And so they crucify him because he calls them to something deeper. And Jesus gives his life for us on a cross because sin requires a sacrifice that we could never pay. So the perfect son of God pays it for us. From 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, he hangs on a cross for you and for me. He gets placed in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he rises from the dead. He meets some people and he says, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. There's this old hymn and it says, Jesus is alive, gleaming in glory. Yes, that's Jesus. That's the Jesus we know. Rabbi, carpenter's adopted boy, Mary's son. He is the Lord himself. Of course he speaks with more authority than your average rabbi because he's not your average rabbi. And as we looked at last week, you've got to ask, what is your life really based on? What is your life based on? We are called to be a people who affirm with our lives what the rest of the world does not understand, that those who love Jesus do not fall. We know why we keep going. We know how we keep going. We know it can be hard, and everything can start coming against us, but we know we can take it. No matter our depression or our melancholy or our hurt or our loss, we get through because our lives are based on the one who died and rose again. It's based on the rock. There's this old African-American spiritual, Southern Gospel, has made famous, uh, the song made famous by uh, Elvis Presley, most of all. I know a white dude sings it, and it's become famous. I don't get it either. Uh, but like uh, Oak Ridge Boys sang it, and John Fogarty sang it, things like that. But this, uh, it's called, I'm Working on a Building. And this is, kind of, this is what Jesus is doing, is, is he's building this church's people into a building. Uh, and these are the people who are the poor and the lame and the cripple. Uh, in Jesus' day, we'd call them the gum on the shoe of Rome. That's who these people were. And they had no hope. And their lives became anchored on the rock who is Christ. He goes, I'm working on a building. It's a true foundation, holding up the bloodstained banner for my Lord, and I never get tired, tired, tired. And the first time I heard this, it was by this, this, this really big, lovable African-American preacher. His name is Don Davis. And he says, you, can't, you sing that song? You cannot just sing tired, tired, tired. He goes, you got to say, tired, tired, tired. I know, I can't do it. I'm a white boy. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful when he does it. And what it's talking about is that the spirit that Jesus gives us, that lives inside of us, that brings us back to life again, never gets tired. It doesn't mean that we don't get buffeted with winds and waves and storms and floods, but that his spirit in us never gets tired, never stops holding us up, never stops moving us forward into who he calls us to be, never stops. God's spirit never stops. And even though we are broke and beaten, we still don't quit. 
There are much things in this old song. If I were a gambler, if I were a drunkard, if I were a sinner, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd quit my sin and start working on this building too. They even have one for preachers. If I was a preacher, I'd tell you just what I'd do. I'd keep on preaching the word of Christ and working on this building too. I mean, the interesting thing is, is it's Jesus who's building that church. Jesus who's building that building, but he invites us into it. And the Sermon on the Mount is our invitation to join the adventure, to come along and be part of it. We get to walk with the one who calls us to obey his words because his words are life. And there is nothing sinful or ugly about the word obedience. It's a beautiful word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Because the streams can rise and the floods can hit and everything can come your way and beat against that house. But when everything is done, it will still stand. It will still stand. And so for us, I think the hard work of the Sermon on the Mount actually begins now. It begins today because you're kind of done with the series, but it's not really done with us. And I can tell you, when we first started, it was supposed to be like 24 weeks, and there was so much stuff we kept going through it, they had to keep extending it out and doing more and more things. That's why it took us all year to basically get through the thing. And I'd recommend, you know, as long as Element has a website, these will be online. You go back and listen to them. Listen to the words of Jesus and, and what he says because we need to be people who live in his name, who are standing on the rock that we are astounded at his teaching and all our lives are placed under his authority. That's how we are supposed to live. I had a lady I was talking to after second service and, and she said, you know, in the last couple of weeks, you know, kind of the rounding out of the Sermon on the Mount, she said, she's got all these things going on in her life and she said, so I'm, I'm praying about this and the things that are being taught and the things that God's teaching me and, and, she goes, and she goes, God clearly said to me this week, I need to let go of my idols of my children and my grandchildren. And I was like, Ooh, ooh, that's tough. She goes, she goes, yeah, it's big. She goes, because in her life, she goes, it wasn't, it's not even my husband. She goes, it's my kids and my grandkids, and they have become the idols for me. And she goes, and, and I realized I gotta, I gotta let go, and those have to be in God's hands. I have to trust Him with all of that stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I'm gonna use that next service. <laughs> See, this is the idea that, that God's words, they transform us because they are authoritative and we sit underneath them. And it teaches us so much because we surrender our lives to him because he has first sought us and bought us and paid for us. And so we become a people who simply are astounded day by day by day. That's why you can read the Sermon on the Mount 20 times and still get 20 new things out. I could preach it again next year and we probably learn more stuff. I won't. I know, you're welcome. But, you know, and we can still get new stuff out of it because we can be astounded and amazed at what he does. This is also why we come to communion every single week. Communion is that place where you break that cracker. It was like Christ's body is broken for us. You can dip it in the wine of the grape juice, whichever one you feel called to. Uh, and again, we don't pass the elements because it's a response to what God is doing in us. And we come and remember that this place, this, this reminds us of the cross of Jesus' death, but also his ultimate resurrection. That all the things that separated us from God, that kept us from actually living and being the kingdom of God, have now been removed. And we now, through this death and resurrection of Jesus, he gives his spirit to us so that spirit that never gets tired, tired, tired can actually live and begin to work through us. The places where we fall, he carries us, he lifts us up and calls us to keep going. And again, the word obedience is a beautiful word. It's not a bad word. So we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, uh, they would love to pray with you. Especially if you're feeling, you know, like, I just don't know about my life and these kind of things. And I've been living my life with religion and not with They'd love to pray with you. The band's going to come up. And as they do, uh, again, like I said, everybody take communion. Uh, there's prayer in the back. Uh, they're offering boxes in the sidewall in the back. And we give because God gave so much to us. And so we don't actually pass a plate. 
uh, as we say all the time, it's, it's the idea that's a response to what God has done. And so that's where they are. And, if, and when God calls you to give, you give. But we give because it's a response to worship of who he is and that he gave himself for us. And there's uh, food and stuff in the back. I say it again this every week because we want you guys to grab something to connect with somebody else and maybe ask some of the questions you know, that, are, that are in the sermon notes. Uh, you know, one of our you know, gospel community leaders spent a lot of time going through this and writing some of these out, and I think they're really good. You know, one of those, one of those questions is, you know, what are the things that stick out to you in the Sermon on the Mount? You know, which one of those milk duds? <laughs> you know, kind of sit there with you. Uh, we, have a, we have a lady who is in our gospel community. They, her husband since got in the military, and they moved back east. Um, but she, when we're going through the Beatitudes, she goes, I have never heard anybody teach the Beatitudes like this. And I don't know if that was good or bad, you know, but, but now that it's all over, because she's been listening, now that it's all over, I want to send her an email this week and just say, so, you know, what stood out to you? You know, what kind of things did you learn? You know, just like the lady about, about you know, the idols in her life are, are these things, and, and the center of her life isn't Jesus. You know, what, what kind of things stand out to you throughout the Sermon on the Mount? Because, again, you know, the Sermon on the Mount today, you know, is how are we going to now live the kingdom of God out out of all the goodness and graciousness that Jesus has so done in us, how do we begin to live that out? And that's living in the kingdom of God through his grace and his hope and his mercy because our God is good. And if you have never met Jesus, again, there'll be deacons in the back and they'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Uh, there's nothing better you could ever you know, do with your life than to follow him. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you so much for being a gracious and good God that reveals yourself to a people who have run headlong into folly. That for some reason, every time we try and do it on our own, we dig our hole and our pit deeper and deeper and deeper. And yet you so graciously come and you shine your light into the depth of the pit that we have dug. And you call us out. Out of the mire. And you clean us. And place us in your family. And call us to live in the kingdom of God. People who, if we were to look at our past lives, would say there's no reason for us to be there. Because it's true, none of us have a reason to be in the kingdom of God because we've all run our own way. And yet you have come and sought and bought us and brought us home. So teach us to be a people who don't get caught up in our own wisdom and our own head knowledge, but of people who are caught up and amazed and astounded at the words that you taught and continue to teach to us through your Spirit. That we would humbly bow our wills to you. That we would live in the grace of the great God who has rescued and redeemed us. That every moment of our lives, you'd remind us to stand amazed in your presence because you are so good. And that in turn would change how we live every day of our life. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.